ora and shalom. This is Josh Brown from the New Zealand Israel Innovation Hub. If you don't know about the Hub, it works to bring Israel and New Zealand closer together through trade and technology. On the 27th of October, the New Zealand Israel Innovation Hub hosted a webinar discussing financial crime and the latest AML and fraud detection technologies to face them. Panelists on the webinar included Alex Sims of Auckland University, Ron Axmon of Authentics, Udav Kritikar of Compliance Plus, Yaron Hazan of Theteray, and Jeremy Levy of Agman Law facilitated the discussion. We hosted the webinar because we wonder if New Zealand may be falling behind in its ability to challenge overseas crime networks engaging in money laundering and fraud, and in warding off attackers who are using ever more advanced tools to commit the crimes. In addition, with blockchain technology now being used to facilitate international transactions of value, beyond cybersecurity, shouldn't we be asking if corporations and individuals have the right technological processes in place to protect new forms of financial assets? Indeed, according to recent research released by the BNZ, New Zealanders are vulnerable and falling victim to more scams than ever. We believe that the answer lies in ensuring the New Zealand public is accessing and employing the most advanced AML and fraud detection tech being produced in the world today. So the objective of the webinar was to inform a New Zealand audience about the latest cybersecurity innovations that can mitigate exposure and impact cyber threats, including that of financial fraud. Thanks, Josh. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the, the first meeting of the Israel New Zealand Innovation Hub. To uh, Innovation Hub, right? Uh, a bit of background. I'm a New Zealand sixth generation uh, Kiwi. Grew up in Auckland. Lived in Israel for eight years, and have been in Sydney for the last fifteen years, where I'm a partner in an Israeli law firm, and also very involved in cyber security. My partner in the law firm is one of Australia's uh, preeminent legal experts in the area of money laundering, money laundering, and so it's certainly an area which we've seen as is very, very important. Uh, I'm here leading the the panel from our office perspective because of my Kiwi connection. In Australia, we've seen just in the last two or three weeks some very, very high-profile cases of cybersecurity breaches of, of large organizations. I'm talking specifically Optus and Medibank. And in both instances, uh, there were there were critical data issues which arose from that. And that's just really added a lot of fuel to the fire, which is happening in Australia, in New Zealand, and in particular, but also worldwide, around risk of cybersecurity risks, risks of cyber fraud of uh, criminal activity from uh, hackers, which goes hand in hand with money laundering and everything else that we're seeing at the moment. The move to online in the last uh, couple of years that it's really been brought forward a lot more by COVID has, on the one hand, changed, changed the way that a lot of us work. On the other hand, has provided new opportunities for cyber criminals, rich pickings, 
as people are working more online, are people also more in different environments outside of the office where they have uh, sometimes different focus points and uh, and are more open to being uh, taken advantage of in a in a cyber criminal type situation. So with this background, what we have seen is that the regulators are putting a lot more onus on organizations, whether they be financial institutions, all organizations that have large uh, customer bases, both criminal, both uh, critical infrastructure and service to take a lot more steps to know their customer. A lot more onus we've seen with the Australian banks, some, some massive, massive fines for money laundering relating activities. So the regulators in Australia and in New Zealand are increasing the fines for both uh, protection of customer data and for money laundering. So a lot more steps required to for, an org- for all organizations, but particularly in financial sector, but equally, for, in- for instance, in uh, the service sector as, as a law firm, we have a, a, a large onus to know our customer as well and identify customers. Same with accounting firms and, and, and most financial services. So know your customers, anti-money laundering is becoming uh, an increasing cost of business and a very important part of business because getting it wrong and getting cybersecurity wrong has a major impact, reputational uh, loss of customers, uh, ability to operate from a regulator and licensing perspective. And so that's that's what uh, today is really all about. Um, I'd like to, before we do, turn over to the uh, first of our speakers. Uh, firstly, thank Josh for putting this panel together. I'd also like, like to thank uh, the Trans-Tasman Business Circle, who are our sponsors. So the, the format for today, actually, put aside uh, an hour and a half of your time. I'm not sure where people are from uh, in terms of um, where it's late in New Zealand. Still uh, afternoon in uh, Australia and obviously morning in Israel, but uh, we're probably expecting this to carry on for roughly an hour, uh, and there'll be some formal, uh, not formal, structured uh, speaking from each of the panelists, and then we've allowed plenty of time for Q and A as well. So, um, Udav, uh, over to you, please to. Introduce yourself and Compliance Plus, and to, to kick off the panel. Yeah, uh, so Odav Kirtikar, so I'm run Compliance Plus. It's a specialist anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism compliance consultancy. We are based in Wellington. So we sort of help uh, New Zealand reporting entities meet their AML obligations in a, you know, in a cost-effective way uh, without like you know, overking compliance. So my, my background in AML, CFT, as I was with um, New Zealand Financial Markets Authority. So I helped set up the AML regime in New Zealand. So and before that, I was in policy. And my sort of core background is law enforcement. I was a police officer in India and uh, worked with the New Zealand Commerce Commission. That's like your ECCC in Australia, an investigator. So yeah, but I'm just interested in how this uh, cybersecurity affects our reporting entities. Um, along with uh, Compliance Plus, we run another company that assists uh, financial advice providers 
meet their obligations under the Financial Markets Conduct Act. And one of the core requirements for licensing is they have to have a cybersecurity policy. So you see the cybersecurity is like is in everyone's face now. It's quite necessary. In terms of the Anti-Money Laundering Act, uh, reporting entities are collecting a um, lot of uh, identity documents. They're collecting biometric information and they're storing it on their computers. Um, they're responsible for the data that they collect. So, you know, they have to understand how to protect the data as well, I suppose. Some of them collect bank card details. Um, we do a lot of audits where we see that these, there are not, none of this information is kept securely. So, you know, people have to be aware that if they're holding consumer data, customer data, they have to keep it secure and protect themselves from you know, cyber attacks, I suppose, their responsibility. What do you see as the, being the, the critical challenges that uh, an organization needs to address uh, from an enforcement perspective uh, to both to meet the regulatory requirements, but also just practical on the ground stuff? Yeah, see, uh, as far as um, for the AML safety uh, obligation, anti-money laundering obligations, the, the New Zealand compliance obligations are really quite light as far as what you actually need to verify or you know, what documents you need to keep. The supervisors here have got a code of practice that have put in a lot more obligation than they in legislation. So if they're keeping in in if they're keeping in you know biometric information, you know, credit card information, they really require to understand how they can be compromised. So we've seen clients um, uh, get compromised through their customers. And the customers get hacked. A customer gets an email with, with compromising their computer, and they then try to get into the customer's account with our clients, and then siphon off data. We've had a client who uses one of New Zealand's like internal affairs ID verification platform, Realme. They got hacked as well. Lost about eighteen thousand dollars. So it is, you know, it's no fault of their, they, there was nothing much that they could do, but they were still compromised, you know, because their customers got compromised and they, they can't, a, a business cannot con con control their customers, you know, and that's how they get vulnerable. The customer gets compromised and then they get compromised. Sometimes you've seen oh. staff, uh, you know, staff, uh, you know, Error of judgment, just you know, lapse of concentration, lapse of understanding. A big fund manager here got compromised through a staff member who got a phishing email, clicked the wrong button, you know, just wasn't thinking. Boom. It seems you're more talking around from the cybersecurity angle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I'm always amazed at the. Uh, I, th I think the New Zealand official statistic is 33 million dollars lost in uh, cybercrime in the last year, and I'm amazed that that being so low it should be uh, in australia we're talking the, literally in the billions but then if you talk about customers being hacked and having to pay eighteen thousand dollars and things like that that's such small money compared to what's happening here maybe there is a this round but let's pivot from cybersecurity, if that's okay and really try and focus on an, an aml perspective so from an aml perspective do you do you see resistance from companies to incorporate the AML regulatory requirements. See the, the so Australia, they have the, no choice. So I'm interested in the New Zealand no, perspective. No, no, they don't have any choice here either. 
they have to comply with the legislation and re regulatory requirements here. Under our AML Act, all that they have to really get is uh, a document data or information that is issued by a reliable or independent source. That is the core requirement in, in the New Zealand legislation. We don't require biometrics or anything like that. It's not required. So there is a code of practice, I think in Australia, they call it safe harbor in, in the Australian regulated environment. So the safe harbor, what they call a safe harbor code in New Zealand requires uh, them to have photographic ID documents. One of the combination is you have an ID uh, document, a driver license, then they ask you to get a bank card on uh, along with it to support it. So of course, these are not required under legislation, but the, you know, it's a code of practice. So people are following it. That they've taken the option of following the more complicated code of practice rather than opting out. That's what we see here. Mm. We've not seen many, many businesses opt out of the code of practice. Of course, our uh, legislation is currently being reviewed. There's a, statu there's a, a statutory review was conducted by the Ministry of Justice. So our act is going to get overhauled you know, in the next year or so. Um, but by the time it comes into force, it'll be another three or four years. And uh, who is responsible for enforcement in New yes. Zealand? Which uh, regulatory so organization? So at present, we've got three government departments. We've got uh, internal affairs that looks after mm -hmm. most of the sector. They look after uh, real estate agents, lawyers, accountants, you know, small loan companies, money remittance companies. Then we have the Reserve Bank that looks after the insurers, the non-bank deposit takers, the licensed non-bank deposit takers, and the banks. Then we have the Financial Markets Authority, where I was, that looks after the you know the the capital markets basically, or the trustee companies. And so the Financial and, Markets Authority would be the equivalent to what we have here with APRA in Australia, which literally in a, in Australia there have been fines of hundreds of millions of dollars levied, which is a good way to get a bank's attention or anyone else's attention. What what are yeah. the levels of fines that could be levied in oh. New Zealand by the financial market regulator? Uh, the the largest fine I've come across is um, four million dollars. Okay, so uh, it's missing some cap, zeros. There's a cap on it to there. really it's get five million. attention. Yeah, it's five million dollars for, for a for a uh, body corporate. So these guys got yeah. four, but these guys were um, they had used they had sort of allowed a Canadian based uh, person to their Chinese origin to move money through New Zealand to China. And the Chinese government and why, would and, them and, and, why, and why wouldn't you if you've got a risk of a $5 million fine? That's just the cost of doing business. Anyway, um, thank you. Thank you. I'm saying it if it's a, if it's, if it's, uh, if the fine is that low, yeah. a large organization will view it as a cost of doing business yeah. rather than as an actual incentive to, to not uh, relative to fines in other jurisdictions. Does that find $5 billion per breach or just an overall uh, fine overall. For, for an entity? Overall. I would have, I I would have assumed that it would be for per, per breach, I think. No, no, it's capped at $5 million. It, it may not be the limit. It's, it's what's been applied. Um, thank you. Yeah. I'd like to actually, just to keep things moving, so very excited to introduce uh, Alex Sims from the University of Auckland. Uh, for a number of reasons, part, part, partly because I'm an alumni of Auckland University, but also uh, I think uh, in such an in, in an area where such as uh, money laundering, where, where it really is still a developing discipline, 
uh, very important uh, input from the universities, uh, both from a technology perspective, but also from uh, a regulatory legal framework and uh, approaches as to how to deal with and, and how best, from a best practice perspective, uh, uh, they can help corporations uh, manage this. So I, I know that in Australia, the universities are really at the forefront and and I'm sure, Alex, you'll be uh, demonstrating the same for us in uh, in New Zealand. So uh, over to you, Alex, if you can unmute, please. Yeah, hi, Jeremy. Thank you. I do stuff around AML, um, you know, CFT, KYC, sort of tangentially. It's not my main area, but I have been, for example, so I'm sorry, I'm at the University of Auckland in the business school in commercial law. Um, and I've been, for example, still am on the, um, oh, the industry advisory group for the AML um, CFT um, uh, legislation because our Ministry of Justice, which is in charge of it, has had, had a recent review. And actually, that, just from a legal point of view, it's problematic because the Ministry of Justice writes the legislation, but it doesn't enforce it. It's up to different supervisors and they have different mm. um, interpretations of it. Um, but that point about the low level of fines, I put in the chat, in New Zealand, we have very low level of fines. Just full stop. So yeah, people do right. treat it as a cost of doing business. I mean, it's um, they think it's high, but it's not. Um, just I'm sort of got sort of the almost the opposite view of probably most people here, and the because we're talking about on one hand AML, CFT, KYC, okay, and then you've got your cybersecurity. The requirements of of know your customer and things and keeping this information is actually leading to worse outcomes because they've got this honeypot of information. So, you know, you're going to yes. come in and, you know, and 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 take it, which we've seen, we've seen ha happen a lot. And most of my work is actually more on the blockchain area. And one of the things that a lot of people are working on um, is decentralized identity. So you've got verifiers who will actually verify information and then give verified credentials to other people so that the um, so, for example, instead of me having to sort of ascertain that you live in New Zealand and you're a certain age or what your age is, I can just say, are you a New Zealander? Are you over a certain age? And I can be assured that you are. I don't need to know a lot of this information, so I'm not holding that information. So it actually makes it um, a lot safer for all concerned. And in fact, um, so I'm teaching on this point at the moment, and I looked a couple of days ago, there's about 100 you know, people in the world just working on digital identity for these types of things. So, but it, it's really, really difficult though with all of all of these things because there's so many different providers and people won't use, businesses won't use them unless customers are using them and customers won't use them unless people are using them. And even I think Realme was mentioned before and that ha has had a very low uptake that's taken a lot of years and that's also slightly dangerous. Why do you well, see the New Zealand experience being different? You don't necessarily want the um, the government or any one entity to have that much information about people, really. Whether it's not just necessarily the government, because the same thing ha ha happening with Google and Facebook when you use federated identity. Don't know if anyone, everyone, you probably you've seen it before. Is when you go to sign into something, it can give you the option creating an account through Google or Facebook. That's an example of federated. Um, 
um, identity as well. So I think it's, you know, to have concentrations of power in any one is, is, is quite worrying. You'd recommend that people don't do? I'd recommend that people do not do that. I mean, just, just for, um, but then it's easy, isn't it? Because you don't have to worry about remembering all these things. But what's really interesting, one thing I can say on the ground is that I've, at the university, um, we set up a cybersecurity foundry a number of years ago, and the level of interest amongst businesses of cybersecurity, especially at board level, so C-suite, was very, very low. No one wanted to know about it. And it's really changed over the past year or so, which is good because it suddenly realised that this is a major problem. And in fact, New Zealand is one of the worst worst places in the world, as in the most attractive places for to be targeted by cyber um, criminals because we're too trusting. And you know, you can that figure that you said about thirty three million is is no way. It's much much higher than that. But people just aren't disclosing it. A lot of this isn't necessarily a privacy breach. So if yes, if now if you've got in and you've got details of you know personal information, but if it's a straight in hack to get financial, to get money or documents or something like that, which aren't personal information, then I don't think there is a requirement to notify anybody of that. So it really does depend on what it is. But also, um, it's just core design as well. So, for example. You know, people, um, the former speaker was saying that, well, if people click on the wrong thing, you know, compromise the, their computers, um, their access. But you, there's good ways of setting that up. For example, you know, to stop passwords being hacked. And again, another thing on the ground is when at my university, University of Auckland, put in two-factor um, authentication for passwords, that just the number of people getting into the system of hacking the system almost fell to zero. Because prior to that, there were lots of compromised you know, people getting in through, you know, people using old passwords and things like that. So it does have a real effect. Oh, just one other quick thing is that one of the, the issues of, um, and you're saying before, Jim, in your opening, was about the compliance costs. It's killing businesses in New Zealand. And also a lot of them have to do enhanced due diligence as well, which requires a lot more information being taken. And there's a lot of pushback. And the worry that we see, especially with blockchain and the crypto space, is that a lot of people in New Zealand, we're now borderless, okay? If there's too many requirements for a local provider, people just go offshore, get an account with someone else, use a VPN, where they end up having a lot less protection. And so, I mean, I'm working on various projects around this issue, and it's to get through to the government and legislators that you need to be careful with this. You know, in New Zealand, there seems to be a thing that we are going to have the most rigorous AML, you know, in the world type of thing. But why? You know, if we're not, we're actually doing more harm than good. A regulatory obligation needs to be, needs to have the end goal in mind, which is obviously to provide the right level of protection, but it also needs to be balanced enough to be able to work. Um, so how can that happen? Well, there's there's still ongoing discussions about this. So, I mean, I was, at, I was actually on a panel last week um, about this and just talking with people, you know, before and after, there is so much anger amongst legitimate businesses who are trying to navigate this. 
I mean, it's great if you've got a consultancy that, that you are doing AML services. You're making a lot of money, but it's not good. It's, yeah. And also what happens is that the larger entities, they don't mind it. They can absorb it. It's the small yes. startups and things like that. They're the ones that just get squeezed out. So it's not particularly healthy. In our legislation, actually, when cabinet put the AML Act through, they discussed a lot about cost to business on it, right? So the core legislation in New Zealand, the cost is just no cost. You just have to get somebody's full name, date of birth and address. You can use a school letter. You can use a doctor's certificate. And I've challenged it. I've challenged DIA, I've challenged FMA, I've challenged RBNZ on that. You don't even require to go to any identity service provider in New Zealand to verify that document. You know, we have an act called the Contract and Commercial Law Act. Section 211 of our Contract and Commercial Act allows our business to accept a document sent to them electronically as an ID document. We've challenged it. The trouble in New Zealand is our market does not know. The supervisors themselves do not know that it is so easy to comply. Enhanced CDD. The enhanced CDD requirement, you speak about Alex, the enhanced CDD requirements is only if the person is uh, the customer is a trust. That is when you have to do enhanced CDD. And the source of funds requirement here is you have to get the source of funds. Where are they getting their money from? A letter from their accountants or you know, a last tax certificate. That in the New Zealand legislation is enough to get them to comply. So the cost of compliance in New Zealand is because they don't understand the legislation. So what we did was um, we contacted, um, and our, our, most of our compliance people, they do the ACAMS courses, right? The ACAMS courses, all Banking Secrecy Act and Patriot Act and all this sort of stuff. So we partnered with Massey. We didn't go to Auckland. We partnered with Massey University and we sort of launched an AML compliance officers course here for the New Zealand market. That, talk, that looks only at the New Zealand legislation because we found that they just don't understand. The supervisors don't understand, our market doesn't understand. Actually, the government had put in a lot of effort to try to cut out costs. Even our audit requirements here are, are really low. You know, the person does not have to be you know, qualified to do a financial audit. You know, the I wrote the audit guideline for New Zealand. You know, there is it is just really low. I wrote most of the guidelines for New Zealand actually for, yeah, for AML. So uh, it sounds like Udav, you're taking responsibility for uh, some no, of the things that no, Alex but, is complaining but, no, about. But the original guidelines, they were really simple. We simplified it right in the beginning. Then I left FMA, set up my consultancy, and then DIA got all these ex-cops in there who cooked things up. And they were they were looking at these compliance documents that were just supposed to be guides as if they were marking a university assignment. You know, and then people said, what the hell is going on? And there was this, you know, non-compliant, 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 which is just, it was just not there in the legislation. So if you challenge them, I've a number of times we've, we've challenged them. We've got a case going on in the in the Court of Appeal now against the Reserve Bank on these things, you know. But the thing is, we found that they don't understand. Ministry of Justice, they hate me, Alex. You know, take my name there, they will, you know, they will not go in the room if I'm there, you know. So, but that is because we think that they have just cooked it up. Compliance was not supposed to be expensive. The, the government wanted willing compliance. You know, we wanted willing compliance because if you if you hit somebody on the head with a phone book, you know, they're not going to really comply. It's just going to be, you know, just it's just going to be uh, like ticking the box type of stuff where the government actually wanted them to give sort of actionable intelligence. 
that was the that was the initial that was that the flag we flew when we used to go out. You have to know your customer, know how much money they've got, what are they going to do with you. If it is not right, tell the police. That was it, and that is it changed. It, it's changed. It, it just completely changed in New Zealand, and that is why the cost of business escalated. At this point in the webinar, Jeremy's internet connection dropped and the sound quality became distorted. Here, Jeremy introduces the next speaker, Ron Atzman of Authentics. So first of all, um, good afternoon, um, midday, whatever, where, wherever you are over the globe. I just came back from Money 2020 in Vegas. Um, so I'm, I'm Ron, I'm the founder of Authentics in German. Um, first of all, I love, I'll give you a second, I, I couldn't more uh share the same feelings of my other two respected uh, uh, panelists here that be talking about compliance and um and regulation and these issues so we are we are an, um, an identity verification and management company and actually you've been you talked about lots of touch points that we deal on a day-to-day basis so um just give you a bit of a background about authentic so um kind of an interesting company so we started uh, give you like a two-minute overview of the company we started um um, uh, we're um, a spin-off of a bigger company called ICTS, which is a big airport security company. So when you land in Israel and and, um, and they scan your passport authentication, that's our core tech. That's where we started more than 20 years ago. Um, we pivoted in the mid-2000 to uh, financial service because we understood that uh, the requirements for ID verification identity management is quite big. We started with a few banks in Israel and in Europe, but um, I think the uptake that happened um, in the last, I'll say, 14, 15 years that I've been in since I've joined the company is the whole issue, not just on the on-prem side of it, but also in the online space. So we are now provide a full identity suite. It comes from documentation, biometrics, data. As Alex said, we are now also into the verifiable credential sector. We have a big partnership with Microsoft on the AM platform, and I couldn't agree more. I'll address, I'll address a few touch points that have been discussed because it's super super interesting and and there's a bit of a conflict i mean like i've seen the industry evolve in the last 15 years and it's quite interesting and it's not just a technology part it is um a psychological shift as well so much more you know we are at the end of the day we're human beings and that's what drives us um so skew perspective so a bit over the stuff so as i said we do documentation we do biometrics we do synthetic fraud we have a big consortium with our customers, I think you probably have touched, you, you are not aware, but you've been verified and onboarded and re-verified by us because we work with Google and PayPal and Airbnb and Coinbase. And you get alcohol delivery from, uh, from and if you get a little scooter uh, with Bird, or if you do, and if you're a celebrity on Twitter, so we do the blue check mark and LinkedIn. So we do payments and gaming and crypto and banking we are actually active in Australia, New Zealand, not as much as I wanted. We have a small mortgage lender in New Zealand who works with us for the last seven years called Screerail. Uh, I don't know if you know them. We work with Pepperstone. We work with a few SMB lenders in Australia. I must admit, I haven't been down under. I'm dying to go there. I was supposed to go there just before COVID, but I'm definitely planning to come to Australia, New Zealand in 2023. So I'll, I'll actually go, I'll go to the end where Alex discussed about the issue of federated identity and decentralized identity it's a very 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 nice concept 
because yes, federated, decentralized, whatever you're gonna call it, there are a few names to that. There is the um, there is the utopia that people will co control their own identity. There's a big conflict, the government. Because what is a government? What is a country? A country based on three pillars, land, currency, identity. I've yet to see any government giving away the identity. It's their currency. That's, that's what makes this a country. And I think, you know, and when you saw Facebook try to create its own currency, it got hammered. And I don't see, um, and you're talking about the, the login, you know, Facebook login, Google login. Uh, there are other players that wants to play this in this space. I, it's, 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 I don't see that happening. On the other side, if you, we work now, then we work on the verified credential with Microsoft, their own platform, and we already have a working platform that respect with Microsoft. Actually, we sold, we are the verifier and we are also the enabler and we sold the product inside Microsoft. We are all talking to all of our customers if it's, um, if it's the crypto exchanges or PayPal or Google or everybody else. Even the blockchain is not that safe. And I think one of our customers that is deep into blockchain, listen, they haven't really figured out, okay, he said, we don't even know what kind of, what kind of a chain we should use because even there, are, it's a bit of, um, I'll say this, it's not that secure than we haven't, it has, it, it's semi-baked. So definitely the world wants to go to, to decentralized identity. The question is, how you standardize it. You see, uh, there was an interesting article by uh, the TSA about mobile driving license security. Um, I'll, um, I'll ask you maybe to share it on. It's, the problem is that there is no standards. Each state is doing, okay, what we're seeing is each state is doing it on own. They're using, some of them are using Thales, some of them are using Idemia, some of them are using these um, small development houses. So it's a, it's a very big problem plugging in all these standards and there is no real standard in this. So that, that's the number one. And also don't forget from a, from a consumer point of view, me, us as consumers, our identity is a currency. So there needs to be a trigger for us to give. So let's say you build your identity wallet and you say to a customer, okay, give me your identity. The guy said, the, the bad person say, why? <laughs> why should I give you my currency? I mean, I won't give you, I'll give you in return to something. I'll give you in return for logging to Airbnb. I'll give you in return to, um, to uh, exchanging a, a crypto on Coinbase. I'll give you an exchange to, I don't know, um, getting, uh, doing alcohol delivery with Uber Eats or with DoorDash, but that's it. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. So, and also, and also what you see, it's another point I want to bring, the whole issue of open banking inside the UK, you know, that they're about, 10 years ago, the whole issue that, you know, the bank should share data between themselves in order to, um, the Bank of England wanted, so, you know, it would be easy to move banks, but that's not really happening. I don't see Airbnb playing ball with, uh, with booking.com or with Expedia in order to make their customer life easier so they can book, you know, multiple platforms with one user. It's, it's, um, we work with both of them, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. How are you using technology to assist with identify uh, identity management, and how can organizations become uh, 
more efficient to to make this task more economical or more automated uh, using using your technology or technology of uh, of other companies. Of course, they should use us because I mean, we we've been in this space for I will say in in the digital world for the last fifteen years, and and because of our globality and are able to support our customers on a global level, if it's New Zealand, Auckland, if we sorry New Zealand or New Zealand, Australia, or any other place in in uh, um, in down under over there in some other places, so we definitely enable them to um, to do it very seamlessly. And also, we what we what we give them. I think one of the big issues that we saw with Octus and with some other players, what we allow them is to one, um, not to store data. So we 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 purge the data almost instantly after we after we verified. And and the other thing is, well, one of our core texts is also we we vectorize all what we have done in the past and we hash it and uh, which is unreversible. So also we allow them to protect the data. So the issue that they were going to be breaches. Um, well, nothing is foolproof. Okay. But we really, really limit, limit their, uh, their data exposure either on our platform or when we send back the data to them in a very, in a very secured way. So that's and And we allow them, and we saw also again uptake of this during um, COVID, when there are a lot of one of the big issues in this industry is that it is very very manual, um, and it's done by um, by a lot of people in the back end. And the fact that our company we're about two hundred twenty, um, most of us are based in Israel, but we support global businesses. And you understand, I mean, in this example, some of our customers they're done under, and and we I'll say this: we haven't even been there, although we've been working in in origin for many many years. So we, we give that capability um, in that respect. So I would say when you're looking at that space, um, that's one of the key things. Okay, how do you support COVID, no COVID, crises, no crises, war, no war. Um, and that's, that's a very big thing. And I think one of our, our key strengths and, and from a scalability and also the ability to get as much um, rich data points from your vendor in that respect to to give up the highest confidence but as as my respected colleague said it before in 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 new zealand the limitations are very very or not the limitations the requirements are relatively low and should definitely be uplifted we have a few customers that are being forward thinking or forward going whatever you're going to think they're overprotected which is very good but definitely uh it's interesting there was also this issue that we saw Australia is definitely pushing into it. They, they had a few initiatives on the digital identity, but again, the problem is that lack of standardization requires you to go to, um, to capabilities that exist. And in order to give high, high, high velocity requirement uh, answers um, and uh, in the, with as much touch point in that respect, that's where we're very helpful. So I think, in the near, in the foreseeable future, I see the sets that we are providing to our customers in your region. I would say best, the best option at the moment until until we also, as a part of the the new the new leaders in in the issue of uh, verifiable credential, will help you know create a standard. And, and again, I've been very long. I've seen a few pivots. I wish I had a crystal ball to see where this industry is going, but uh, but I don't. And and we're trying to. 
we're tr- as he's saying, we're trying to have our fingers in all over the pies, in all these stand, different stands, and not to see what will eventually will pick up. So, so that's but, that's that's our position in respect. So, Ron, how does customer verification data required from an AML perspective connect mm-hmm. with uh, business customer data or the stuff that would typically be stored on a CRM solution? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're you're at the front end, obviously, when somebody is coming in to become a customer for the organisation. Mm-hmm. That you say you purge the data. How does that then marry to the CRM? Or, in other words, are you treating this the customer data for AML perspective or a KYC perspective just as a, a silo, for want of a better word, which goes through, ticks that box, and then the the core customer data is still stored with all its risks that Alex was talking about before uh, from a doing business with that customer perspective? We give a very, very wide option to our customers how do they want this to be done. By default, raw data for us is a hot potato, so we try to stay away from it, okay? Um, um, so, But if they want us to keep that data, we do it only for in order for protection. We have a platform we call Instinct, and Instinct is our, um, is our identity fraud engine. And what Instinct does is that it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a master decentralized platform that we have we have uh, we have five global um, um, production environments around the world in Asia Europe and the Americas and what happened is that we look for what we look is for anomalies on the data that we've seen in the past so they have two they either don't need to they, one option is just to cover their eyes as, as like I don't want to know anything and just delete it and they'll deal it on their own the second option we give them is to look into repetitions into their own data. So, for example, if you've seen Jeremy's uh, your PII with Josh names and with Alex face, all of them are legitimate, valid data points. But what they're trying to build is to build different identities. And actually, what we start to see at the moment is, since of the um, research all over the place of the Optus breach, okay, is that these data will start to appear. Um, in different um, in different uh, places around the world, and because you know the Australian market is is a very cocooned it's a very cocooned market. But what they don't understand is that once it once it's out, it can appear in it's, out. Uh, there, it's yeah. out, and you know then people start playing with you in 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 Brazil, which is a high which is a high risk environment, or or even in the US or in the UK, there are a lot of uh, expats traveling. You know. You know, there's a, there's a very uh, big Aussie uh, community in, Australia, in in the UK, and why why shouldn't have been? You know, you'll appear in in, in New York. It's you, you travel, so so that so the second layer is for them just so we purchase it, but we do have these signals, and they the question is what do they do on their side? I don't know. I think that what we're giving them. So this project, they have these vectors, and they hit these vectors, and it's okay. I've seen Jeremy in my ecosystem, and he was used for I don't know maybe. Oh, one time opening a bank account and the second time was for uh, getting alcohol delivery in the morning after is to rent a house with 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 Airbnb or to make a booking uh, with uh, with booking.com in that respect. And the third option we allow them is not just to look at these vectors in their own business, but they can start if they wish to, but then they they can opt into the consortium and then say, listen, um, I'm now, let's say if it's Optus, okay, so Optus will basically opt in to start playing with uh, other players, could be Australian, 
Um, it might be Australian uh, customer or it could be a global customer. So we give them these three options and we protect the data. It's a very secure way in our stuff. They are starting to ask how they can protect their data on their side. And we start offering them different methods. But, you know, these huge organs, the, the older, not the older generation, the ones that come with heritage, technological heritage, they have a bit more, uh, they're a bit, they're they a bit not slower, but it will take them time to get there. The more newly formed companies or more tech savvy, um, they already started, okay, okay, how do we protect our data? How we purge it and have the minimal stuff in that respect? So breaches will not happen. So thanks, thanks, Ron. Uh, I, I think uh, I'd like to now hand over to Yaron. Yaron Hazan, hopefully we'll be able to bring this all together because uh, on the one hand, Yaron, you're, you're dealing with uh, regulators who are uh, a very, very key part of this uh, equation, but also your, your company, Betaray, um, has an AI approach, which, which is really important, I think, uh, uh, and can deal with, uh, even Ron, I was surprised at how manual some of the things you're describing are. Let's move move across to the less manual, to the AI, and hear your Ron's input. Both would be very helpful to hear about what the company does, and then specifically your experiences with the regulators around the world. Thank you very much. It was fascinating to hear the previous speakers. I will start by introducing myself. My name is Yaron Khazan. I'm Vice President for Regulatory Affairs in Tetaray, intuitive AI company that detects financial crime for large organizations and regulators. In my background, I started my career at the Israeli police. I was responsible for counter-terrorist funding investigations and the financial activity of international organized crime groups. Then I moved to PwC, where I was leading forensics and initiated compliance and anti-money laundering practices in Israel. I was leading it for seven years. Then I was the head of compliance at HSBC Bank, financial crime compliance and regulatory compliance. And finally, in the last almost six years with Tetaray, I find myself one step ahead of the bad guys. I always used to chase the trails that they leave behind, and now I can find them in spots that they would never imagine. Uh, into our topic, our discussion and what Tetra does to enable financial institutions, small and big, face those challenges in an effective manner. We heard in this forum of people who want to do the right thing, and want to help financial institutions do the right things, many different opinions about data collection, data maintenance, and the use of data. The beauty of Tetaray is that by very sophisticated algorithms that work, if you know the term, by unsupervised machine learning approach, meaning that you don't have to know a lot of the data before you start detecting uh, the suspicious events, Tetaray learns behavior in the data on many parameters at the same time and highlights the suspicious event by many risk indicators. So for example, if I used to do certain amount of activity usually, and now I'm dealing with more people as counterparties, I'm receiving funds from three sources rather than one. I'm interacting with New Zealand's when in the past I was only interacting with Bahrain and Singapore, 
and the volume of the money coming in suddenly equals to the volume of the money coming out. All these are measured at the same time, and these are only a few small, simple parameters that I just mentioned, and boom. You have a case that any investigator, when he looks at it, immediately identifies the facts of what was wrong, what are the reasons that this thing is wrong, who was involved, where the money came to, where the money came from, and all the participants and the potential uh, facts. Add to that, that uh, we can also identify specific indicators for terrorist funding, specific indicators for human trafficking, specific indicators for drug trafficking, and suddenly, the banks that use us, the Santander, Credit Agricole, BNP Paribas, the large banking groups in the world, or the fintechs that use us, whether it be Nouvelle, Pioneer, Travelex, or whoever, suddenly they have a shield, a defense mechanism that will enable them to detect not only, forgive me for the word, the stupid indicators of specific things that everybody used to look for for 20 years, but suddenly to see a real picture of reality and understand that they can actually stop and prevent crimes on a timely manner. Now, with all the respect, and there is a lot to the progress we have done in the KYC mechanisms, in the authentication mechanisms, criminals are smarter and criminals usually found ways to break in and Tetere enables and allows banks like Santander move from de-risking activity slowing down cross-border payments and taking ridiculous prices for any transaction that you want to do. And I'm talking also from personal experience. I just moved to Dubai from Israel and I had to, to move a certain amount for advanced payment for rent. And I paid $1,000 in total for costs, exchange rates, etc. It's ridiculous. But Tether enables banks like Santander to do it smoother to identify things on a timely manner and therefore to open the door. And if everybody talks in the world on financial inclusion, they are doing financial inclusion because they can trust their controls. Now, on the other hand, if you look at places like Estonia, Sweden, and New Zealand, what are the common characteristics for those three types of countries? advanced people, advanced economies. Uh, in many cases, they already are advanced from technology perspective, but forgive me for the world, naive. And you combine those two and you have the great place for bad guys to start operating from. And uh, Estonia got it really bad. And I know a lot of people in Estonia, both on the supervisory aspect of banks, but also in the financial intelligence unit. And they now say, oh my God, we were so naive. We trusted everybody. We opened the door to everybody. Now they're being a bit maybe over-defensive, but it's very, very usual. When I worked at HSBC, we became crazy. We closed accounts and exit customers almost for no reason, just because what we have experienced in the past. So economies that are naturally uh, based on trust, on good people and advanced economies uh, run fast. So we run fast to blockchain, we run fast to crypto, we run fast to uh, FinTech. We believe that we can advance 
in our economy solutions, but we forget that at the same time, we get more vulnerabilities for ID thefts, for breaching and cyber attacks, and definitely for becoming the weakest link in the chain for the money laundering and terrorist funding uh, purposes. So if I'm a bad guy, and this is why I always laugh when I see where our customers ask us to use the Harris countries list, I always laugh and say, you define Harris countries as places that you know in the past what happened. If I'm a bad guy, I wouldn't go to these countries because I would be immediately flagged. And all the authentication and all the uh, monitoring solutions that learned from the past will immediately identify me. So I would go to New Zealand. I would go to, to Norway. I would go to places that people perceive them as legitimate, trustworthy, but the, the regime and the practices in these places are still a bit naive because they have not yet experienced uh, severe uh, attacks or severe large criminal schemes. If you think about Australia, what happened with Jetpack and the, the child trafficking or human trafficking uh, scheme that was uh, published a few years back, this caused a dramatic change because the, in Australia, for example, the anti-money laundering law was relatively legislated very late after many other countries. It's not that in Australia there were no laws or restrictions or controls in place to stop criminal activity from easily coming into the financial system, but the philosophy, mentality, and culture in many cases influence us to act too late, only after we were hit. So, you know, I'm very interested in what you're talking about uh, account monitoring and being able to identify, you know, anomalies in customer behavior. So what we find with um, you know, reporting entities who use automated software for this is that they get inundated, actually inundated with false positives, right? Because, you know, uh, the account monitoring software works across all customers in the business and then they have to employ someone just to look at, you know, cases that are actually what the, the, the term that you use is false positive, right? One, a bank in New Zealand got into serious trouble with their regulator for not being able to do enough investigations on all the false positives that were being uh, you know, thrown thrown out by the software. So you've got we've got a few automatic software outfits that I've sort of come across in my audiences. One a company called Jade, other one Thomson Reuters, does something called Transwatch. You know, we looked at them. Um, so how does how does your software sort of differ and how will it prevent false positives, you know, a business getting false positives? Tetare produces less than 20% false positives. If you have been in the industry for enough time, it's mm -hmm. crazy. I was head of compliance at HSBC. I had 100% false positives for three years. Mm -hmm. We flipped the coin. Our mm -hmm. detection ratio is positive and not only positive, the amount or the portion of alerts that we produce that is important, significant and investigation worthy is almost each and every alert that the system produces. Now, on the other hand, as we all know, especially for small organizations, but also for the large ones, the other side of the problem is efficiency, not only effectiveness, and you don't want to deal with thousands of alerts. Mm 
We don't do it by increasing the number of alerts. The banks that uh, selected us three, four years back to be the leading transaction monitoring system, you can imagine that they have done that only after they've tested us for a year compared to other solutions and testing KPIs both on effectiveness, meaning that we can find those unknown unknowns, unique patterns, complex patterns, and new models operandis of criminal activity, but they also mm -hmm. wanted to see that they will not have to deal with too many alerts on the other hand. Yeah. And we have achieved that. We have, we have in average, produced 40% less than any other rule-based transaction monitoring solution because we are not rule-based, because the system is smart and not non-smart, as I said earlier, like the usual common systems for transaction monitoring. And the, the fact that uh, the approach is a multi-dimensional approach. And when you identify a case that is suspicious, why do we call it intuitive AI? It's like our brain. When you see something, when you're driving and you see something bad that is coming, you, your brain actually connects several dots at the same time. You identify a kid, that you identify a ball, you identify that he's running in a certain speed and, and you, you can anticipate that he will come and if you will not slow down, you may crash. The same goes with Tetherate. You identify several parameters at the same time. You don't look transaction by transaction. It's meaningless. So you take aggregated activity and accumulated activity. And this alone, by the way, help us to be much more efficient. If me, Aaron Khazan, opened my bank account at a bank in Dubai, and I've done, let's say, in my account were like 500 transactions on a month. Maybe if I would have looked at it at rule-based approach, I could have triggered seven different alerts for the same behavior because one transaction breached a certain th uh, threshold of a certain scenario and the other one breached a certain threshold of another scenario. In Tether, you'll get one alert because you see all the scenarios or all the risk indicators, which ones were breached by how much, how different I am from the population, how different I am from my history on each and every one. And the beautiful thing, that you don't find the most interesting cases in those spots where we usually used to locate. You don't find them with the high-risk customers only, you don't find them with the high-risk countries only, and you don't find them with the high-risk products only, with the cash or whatever it was. You mm -hmm. find them with the specific changes in behavior and the species, specific unusual behaviors that once you see them, you say, wait a minute, why should a customer do that from a legitimate financial perspective? Now, I would, Add to this question something you have not mentioned, but will also address many of the things that we talked in the beginning of the conversation. Privacy, data collection, etc. We need minimized data. When we analyze SWIFT data, in the SWIFT message alone, you have all you need to understand suspicious behavior. So mm -hmm. if you take field 50 with beneficiary details, uh, 50A or 50B or 50C with the beneficiary bank, uh, sorry, originating details and originating bank details, all the way to the banks involved in between, 259 beneficiary name and address and bank. That's it. You have all you need to understand if something is wrong. Now, the beauty of it, that the system will not indicate this is suspicious because Yaron Khazan has done it and Yaron Khazan has done things in the past. No, no, no. It would indicate the behavior. Now, we have lawyers here as well. The criminal acts start with an action, with something wrong that somebody has done. You cannot blame something, someone from being connected to a bad guy. 
you can blame someone because he did a crime. So first of all, it's the facts, the, the deed, the action that people has done and we monitor the behavior. And then in criminal law, you need to prove the intention that something was, somebody intended to commit a crime. Now, let's scope back in. We talk about financial industry. We don't, we don't talk yet about law enforcement. We also support law enforcement and financial intelligence units, but leave this aside for a moment. The financial industry, their responsibility as the first line of defense for humanity is when they provide their services to be able to identify the risks and to report them. So I think that if you take this obligation to the concrete of what I am doing, and because what I'm doing, I'm exposing the financial industry and humanity to the potential criminal activity, this is where I should put the light on. And for that, you, you don't need all this uh, mechanism to screen people because we know the bad guys know their names are on the list and we know that they know uh, that if now there are sanctions against Russia, if they will operate from a company in Russia, it will be diff more difficult for them to transfer money. So they will go to New Zealand and Denmark and the uh, places that are perceived more legitimate. They will open companies very easily with names of directors that were not listed in the past and didn't have any criminal record. And then they will start moving the funds into the financial industry. This is where you wanna catch them. Because then if you have the right tools, they will not survive more than a month. And when they start operating a laundering machine and we detected the Russian laundromat in the past, if you heard of it, and we presented it to the uh, Bank of International Settlements, the Financial Action Task Force, FinCEN, uh, FCA in the UK, everybody were shocked that it was actually possible to detect it. Because when you look at what these guys did, they knew exactly how the mechanisms work. They knew exactly how the transaction monitoring systems are tuned. This is why we end up as the good guys with the false positive that you mentioned, and they easily and smoothly run billions of dollars in the system without being noticed. Uh, thanks, Johan. Getting that right balance is critical as to as to how this will actually ultimately play out in a constructive and successful way or not. And I think the use of AI and solutions, technology, technological solutions, such as what uh, your company is offering is uh, is of paramount importance. Do people have uh, questions? If they do want to unmute themselves and ask a question of the panel, please uh, feel free. Hi, um, so my name is Maury. I'm from New Zealand and I'm currently, oh, it's all good. Um, so I'm actually currently at the FMA, at the Financial Markets Authority. So that's the regulator of capital markets in New Zealand and one of the um, anti-money laundering regulators as well. Um, so I don't actually work directly with the monitoring space. I'm in the legal team, but I just wanted to make a comment earlier about um, your question about like where the companies in New Zealand are um, kind of jumping on board with AML requirements or if they're reluctant. And I can tell you anecdotally from, you know, from my work that what we are seeing is that companies are really, really reluctant to do anything to do with AML. They see it as time consuming. They see it as cost consuming. We've had a case where 
um, from what my colleague told me, a director of a very large fund was Googling AML requirements while meeting with the AML. Um, so, um, FMA, right. if, oh, sorry, sorry, while meeting with FMA. And so it's, um, it's, and it's for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because of the cost, like Alex mentioned. Sometimes it's because they don't see the benefit because they're like, oh, you know, nothing's ever happened. Why should we bother? Um, sometimes it's because they don't realize there are technological options that could save them um, that cost and time. You know, it's, uh, it's it, it, the FMA is kind of, to your earlier comments about, oh, why aren't there larger fines or why is it, um, you know, what's the attitude of the regulator like? The legislation's quite new in New Zealand. So like when someone mentioned earlier about how Australia adopted these legislation, this sort of legislation late, we adopted even after that. So, um, and a couple of years ago, the FMA sort of published a note saying that We've kind of given businesses several years to adjust now. We're going to start taking a more stern view. Um, I'm not sure if that's happening or not. At least I can't, I, I have no insight into that. Um, but it is really interesting to hear um, kind of comments from kind of what, what the technological solutions are to some of these problems. Thanks. That, that's a very important insight. And, and even beforehand, when Ron was describing the fact that they're receiving the data overseas, the, the light bulb that went on in my head was straight up with privacy concerns. So you can see why both from a, even from a privacy regulator and a customer regulator, implementing these things would be challenging in a lot of ways, but still necessary. Thanks. Does, uh, Jacob? Yes, I'd like to, uh, make a general statement quickly and then also ask a question of Ron. Um, for those of you who are unaware, here in Australia, we had a, a rather large exfiltration of data from a telecommunications company called Optus. One of the big things about that was the fact that the PII stolen was unencrypted. Uh, and also the fact that Optus had been holding onto that PII for a long, long time. Uh, for no good reason by the sounds of things. Now, uh, the big question that's going around the community here is why wasn't that data encrypted? And I was going to ask, Ron, you guys provide a, a rapid ID service, number one, and I want you perhaps just to speak to, to that and how, if that actually, when you do the rapid ID, does it, does it hash the PII? And also, um, I believe you guys uh, uh, specialise in synthetic fraud, and I wanted you to if you could speak to that a little bit also. So the first and the second part. Okay, so so first of all, you're right. I mean, we, I think, um, I have a, I'll give you a small company joke. They call me Ron Paranoid. I'm always paranoid on, on PIA data. So I'm, um, <laughs> if you, you've been too long in the industry and you've been with so many customers and you see um, you know, we go under the hood with so many big tech players, not just tech players. I think even with Duran, we have a few mutual customers like Santander or Saxon or DARS or CIBC. So, I mean, you, you see that and, 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 and you're, and you're getting these shivers that you see that stuff and, and it's okay. How can I, how can we not get exposed and, and whoever's been long enough knows the, the risk and the challenges and, and what happens if something goes wrong? This is why four years ago, we uh, we were already encrypting everything, okay? But I think we took it to the next level in 2019 when we started hashing everything, even what we have, and protecting a way that even us cannot 
rehack it or you know i hope i mean like you never know but i think and we test ourselves all the time so this is number one in that respect for you know to to protect us and protect our customers which is number one and, and you saw and, and jeremy talked about you know data going all over the place i mean because we are a global player by definition and we deal with data i mean like with most of our customers uh, if you're looking, uh, I listed a few of them. I don't want to name them again, but you know, you know, we deal our customers in Indonesia and in India and in Nigeria, and because we are single source to them, because we are the only true global player in, in our sector. And and I don't need to tell you how complicated it is to have. It's, it's having one vendor is good. If you need to have multiple vendors for different geolocations, it becomes even more complicated talking about cost issues and operation issues. So this is why you also purge the data and if well, what is not purged, we, we hash it. And, and, by we, and we are compliant by all the regulations, if it's GDPR or CCPA, or you know, there are new regulators coming all over the place. So we, every, and even now, we're getting, even now there's certification in Australia and we are the, in the process of getting um, certified for the Australian market because it's such a big market for us, not from local players, but actually from, global players that we provide services in Australia um, and New Zealand. So so this is respect to, to one thing. And with just, regards just, to- Ron, just, just very, very quickly to that point. How, how long do you hold on to that data for? And also uh, one of the big uh, bywords here in Australia, and I think in New Zealand too, is, is sovereignty and you know, a sovereign, sovereign solution, sovereign data. Just to speak to mm -hmm. that, just a little bit before going to- we are mat we are servants of our masters and our masters is our customers or the, the corporations so we do whatever they tell us to do inside our contracts we have different um data retention policies and we and we follow so some of our customers want zero retention some wants a week and some wants longer so we follow by the what it what we are contractual to do uh, with them, and we put the right protections and the right policies in order to make that happen. So, um, as I said, we are servers. We it's it's a state of mind, and that's how we provide uh, service to our customers. Raid relates to uh, our instinct. Actually, I, I was actually while we're talking, um, I. I was gonna upload um, if if I'm allowed to share my I don't know if I'm allowed to share my screen, but I want to show you the different attacks we've been seeing coming from across the world. So here you see basically the heat map of attacks of synthetic fraud we're seeing coming um, on a global level. Okay, so this is um, you see the different vectors of attack, half a million the, the different concepts we've seen in the last world, and if we look at Australia. And you see Australia is not a small dog. We have 35,000 35, attacks coming from Australia. Um, you can see... Sorry, when you, everything... say, you say coming from Australia, that means in Australia or originating from Australia? Originating from Australia with Australian citizens, okay? And even... even so Alex, in, so in... Impact, impacting on Australians, not... They're, they're not... Well, it might... Well, it could be. I need to look at and I need to look at the IP where it's coming from and and the the IP and the geolocation. It's not that granular, okay. But even you see, we don't have a lot. We have a few even coming from New Zealand, as you see, Alex. You're not that clean, um, but um, you see, it's when we started opening the Australian market for the products being you see from uh, the last couple of months, 
even in September. So we see a lot of conflicts in the last, uh, let's say this, three, 380, 380, these confirmed, these, this is the average, this is the average attack per identity. Sorry, it's, uh, it's it, these are the unique attacks. But if we're talking from, um, let's say if we're gonna minimize it just from, um, let's say, let's go just for beginning of this year, I would say we have about, well, it hasn't really changed. We have a massive attack coming on the screen in the last couple of months. So, and you see this, This, by the way, this is live data. So Which would be the Optus one. Could be. Uh, we don't know really what's the use case because we haven't really drilled down, but you can mm. see where it's coming from. So lots of conflicts coming in the last, yeah, definitely very interesting. So everything is anonymous. So only our customers basically can decipher if it's their customers or not. We don't really know where it's coming from because for us, we are neutral. But what we're providing is, say, listen, this, this specific person we've been, has been compromised and, and we can go much deeper. This is just from a, this is anonymized stuff. We have another dashboard we show to our customers on what use cases, but you can definitely see where things are coming across the globe in that respect, and specifically in Australia, and for what use cases. So you can start defining as block, you know, you can start, as you say in rugby, tackling them and start to preventing them from using these identities in other places, or basically even, or if the regulators would have gone, we can give them the, uh, uh, the they can work with the customers. Listen, these identities have been breached, therefore we should give them additional protection. So this gives a bit of the, the scope and the magnitude we see. And, and as you said, because we deal with so many global customers, it's not just related to the Australian or New Zealand market, this is viral. So it can go, we can see these uh, identities being breached in the US. We can see these identities being breached in, um, in a, I mean, you see where, you see our global coverage. So in that respect, it's super, super interesting. And it looks like Australia is relatively high if that uh, circle is proportional. Yes, you're correct. Even, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're only 24, 25 million people. 24, 25 million people, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and look at look at the U.S. and uh, U.S. is uh, so proportional for the last couple of months. Australia is relatively yeah. high, so definitely, high. I would yeah. say there is definitely something coming out. And if we if we connect the dots, it wouldn't be too crazy to say that Optus was a bit of a an accelerator for this. Except the Optus has really only been in the last month. So, so could have been a more, few more. Let's more not recent, just more recent, more recent data. Yes. So there's probably a lot of stuff going on that we're not even aware. Interesting. That gives you a bit of perspective what, what we see. I mean, like, don't forget, we are blind. We don't know exactly who it is, but that's but but our customers, they have they have they have the key to unlock the data and they don't understand where it's coming from. Thank you very much, Josh, and the New Zealand Israel Innovation Hub for putting together this. It's been a very fascinating discussion. And uh, and uh, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob Oberman at CoLab82. I have to say, thanks very much, Jacob. Thank you to CoLab82 as well. Absolutely. And thanks, Jeremy, for hosting. Uh, wish everyone a, uh, a Yom Tov in Israel, uh, a good evening in New Zealand, and maybe we have a little bit of sun still and, uh, and a little bit of the afternoon in, uh, in, in Australia still. Not much.